Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In a religiously diverse and vibrant society such as the United States, and especially in the Mountain West, where religion plays such a major role in our history and contemporary culture and politics, religious literacy becomes a key component of good citizenship. The 2022 Benyon Teachers Workshop, presented by the USU Mountain West Center for Regional Studies, is titled Religion and American Democracy, Literacy, Liberty, and the Public Good. And uh, so we welcome in the studio today the uh, director of this year's Bunyan Teachers Workshop, Patrick Mason, Leonard J. Arrington, Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. On the phone, we have Lauren Kirby, a scholar of American religion and politics and an expert on the pedagogy of religious studies. Uh, she's a visiting fellow at the Center for Culture, Society, and Religion at Princeton University. Uh, Dr. Kirby, welcome to the program. Thanks. Glad to be here. Good to have you with us. Um, very interesting uh, book. Uh, Dr. Kirby's author of Saving History, How White Evangelicals Toured the Nation's Capital and Redeem a Christian America. I want to talk about that as we go along a little bit. And uh, I understand your current project develops a pedagogy for public understanding of religion, focusing on how religious narratives invisibly fo- inform how Americans think and about work. So that's uh, interesting. We'll talk about that as we go along as well. Uh, First of all, um, Dr. Mason, what's the Bunyan Teachers Workshop? Yeah, so this is, as you you mentioned, this is a program of the Mountain West Center at at Utah State University, and they've been doing this for several years. And it's a a summer workshop. It's an intensive week uh, where we bring together uh, a number of uh, educators from around the state. This is mostly uh, secondary educators, so uh, junior high and high school, but we get some elementary school teachers as well, as well as a few graduate students from here here at Utah State uh, and other people who are interested. And we come together for a, a week of intensive uh, conversations and training and teaching around a particular theme. The theme changes every year, but it's always dedicated to the preservation of democratic values and principles. That's that's the kind of core mission of the Benyon Workshop. Uh, so this year we're focusing on religion and, and the role of religion in American democracy. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm really excited because it uh, you know most of the time I'm I'm working with other people here at the university and I, I like the the idea of engaging people from the broader public, especially educators who are doing they're on the front lines, you know, teaching our kids in middle school and high school and and the public schools. This will be happening in June. This in June, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The website's up there and uh, and available. Or I guess you're accepting applications accepting applications. For, yeah. yeah. So so uh, if anybody who's interested can go on the website on Mountain West Center's uh, website, and there's a specific page for the for the Benyon workshop, and they can go in and, and apply, see what it's all about, uh, and they get continuing education credits. So teachers, you know, have to do this uh, to keep up their their licensing, and uh, uh, graduate students can get some college credits. So because it's a pretty intense week, uh, you know, we're we're pretty much uh, sun up to sundown uh, uh, for five days, and then, and then they do some projects alongside what we do in the classroom. Some interesting things to be talked about, uh, teaching about religion versus teaching religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the workshops, how to have a hard conversation about contentious topics. Um, and uh, was America founded as a Christian nation? That's, that'll be an interesting uh, topic. And who's afraid of religious liberty? Uh, title of another workshop as well. Let me turn to Dr. Kirby. Um, give you first crack at this. Uh, a definition of religious literacy. What? Uh, how would you define that? Oh, that's a tough one to start off. But <laughs> religious literacy, for me, is uh, it's, it's not knowing a bunch of facts. It's a particular way of thinking about the world. 
and being able to recognize religion when it appears or when it's sort of invisible, which I can talk about more later on. Um, but we live in a world where religion really matters. It matters to individual people, um, and those people are the ones who create and maintain the social structures and cultural norms we live within. Um, so being able to recognize those religious influences and how religion is motivating people in their decision-making on an individual and collective level is really important. Um, so that's what I try to get across when I'm teaching religious literacy, is really it's a way of thinking about the world. It's a way of assuming religion is there, and then you ask the religion question. You start, you know, you learn some tools from us to start digging into the subject matter so you can find the religion there. And that just gives you a much more informed picture of a very complicated and religiously diverse world. Patrick Mason, what uh, what's your definition? Have you ex- expanded on that? Yeah, well, well, that, that's fantastic. Uh, uh, what Dr. Kirby just said, and uh, I mean, I I do think it it begins with with uh, knowing something about all the all the religions around us. I mean, I I think uh, so. It, it's not, as she said, just facts. It's not mere facts. It has to go beyond that, because there's a way that. Um, you know, I, th- I think that religious literacy informs citizenship. I, th- I think should, it should inform our pluralistic values of being able to, to, to live together. So it's not just knowing enough about another religion that I can attack it, <laughs> you know, that, that, that I can uh, say all, all the things that I think are wrong about it. I, I think there's a different set of values and norms that, that move toward pluralism. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it moves towards uh, uh, appreciation. Uh, there's a recognition. Certainly, there are some similarities uh, among different religious traditions and religious expressions, and and I think people like to go there, right? Oh, here here are the things that are similar between Judaism and Buddhism, or something like that. But it's also an appreciation of real differences. Uh, the the religions are different. Uh, there's a reason why somebody is Jew- Jewish and somebody is Buddhist, uh, and 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 somebody else is is a Sikh. Um, you know, those those distinctions matter just as much as the similarities. And I think being able to recognize them and understand them, and and also then understand, uh, and and Lauren sort of suggested this, the way that they operate within a secular world. Um, so it's, I, I think it's a vital part of 21st century citizenship. Uh, religion is not going away, uh, and uh, the trends change, the numbers change over time. But but it's still we're we're still a, a deeply religious world, and so understanding the ways and the patterns that the religion operates in the world and in people's lives. Uh, Dr. Kirby, um, I, I think you alluded to this in the invisibility, right? And as some some people mm-hmm. take it as invisible. Some people want it to be invisible, right? And um, yeah. and and uh, a lot of times, I think in the U.S. we um, and I'm quoting here from the Harvard site: imagine religion to be a separate, private thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, but you're, you know, we're we're saying here, I guess it's it's uh, religious people bring themselves and their beliefs to the public square. Yes, they really do. And um, yeah, sorry, I was doing a separate call. Um, yeah, we often think that we have this myth of religion being this private thing in the United States. And speaking as a sociologist, I can absolutely blame sociologists for that. Um, this is a big theory in the middle of the 20th century. Um, everyone is convinced religion was sort of something that was going to be, you know, contained within your individual mind and heart and not really relevant to public conversation. And that just wasn't the case. The facts have not borne that out, both in the United States and around the world. So religion is always in public. 
And we can either shut our eyes and pretend it isn't there and wish it, wish it away. Um, but I think it's way more constructive to recognize it's there and think, okay, this is, you know, reality. This is as much a part of our public life as race or gender. So how do we think about the way this works in the world? Um, and how do we learn to see the things that we've been told we shouldn't see, right? There's sort of a, a subversive element to it almost of, you know, we're, we're not supposed to notice religion in the public square. Um, it's not supposed to be there, but it is. So we need to work with that reality and figure out how to, how to live in a reality-based society that's not um, claiming that something isn't there when really it is. The emperor has no clothes, as it were. Right, um, right. You know, it's, it's right in front of us. So um, we want to equip teachers with tools to be able to do that, to help their students sort of unlearn that invisibility. Um, and that, I think, is, is a real value of this workshop and a real gift to students that teachers are in a position to help students sort of uh, see past that, that old narrative that is no longer serving us and help them to see the reality of the world they live in. Yeah, and maybe if if I can jump mm-hmm. here, maybe uh, th- th- that's terrific, Lauren. I think one of the maybe concrete ways that we can all think about this and, and appreciate what, what we're discussing here is that, um, you know, in in the United States, at least, uh, so we, we just celebrated Easter, right? Christians just celebrated Easter. And uh, and and I heard of uh, a number of school districts uh, that, that give students Friday off, which would be Good Friday in a kind of Christian liturgical calendar. Now, they don't really call it Good Friday anymore or a part of Easter weekend. They find some other kind of secular framing for it. But the reason why we give a holiday or why, why we celebrate this is because of a Christian holiday. We do the same thing at Christmas, right? We, we actually organize our calendars, our academic and work calendars, around a Christian holiday. Uh, and we find other things to call it. We call it winter break or, or other things like that. But the fact is that, that we actually are organizing our secular society around a particular religion. Now, we don't do that around Jewish holidays, or around Hindu holidays, or around Muslim holidays. Uh, and so, so there, the, as, as Lauren said, religion is always there. It's always present, but sometimes we hide it behind some other things. And I think uh, helping to talk about it, sort of bring it out into the open and talk about what's actually going on, it's, it's not an anti-religious move. It's, it's simply... To, to, to recognize what we're doing, and also maybe t- then to, to, to think a little bit more about what it means if you're not part of that sort of cultural majority, right? What, what if you are a Hindu in America? What if, what if you are a Buddhist in America? Or what if you're entirely secular in America? And in a lot of ways, your calendar and your life revolves around a kind of traditional Christian calendar. So, you know, and there are lots of other ways that we can think about the way that this plays out, whether it's in God we trust, on our currency, and, and other things like that. But so simply seeing it, what's in front of us, and, and then being able to have productive conversations uh, about uh, what, what's going on in our society. You, um, it, you, you sparked a memory. Um, this is totally secular, no religious overtones at all, but it, but it, it illustrates how r- when religion's involved, it's more freighted, right? Mm-hmm. So I grew up in Vernal, rural area, mm-hmm. and uh, we got the hunt off. Hunting season, you know, two or three days mm-hmm. off school. Yeah, um, I wasn't a hunter. I didn't, but I appreciated having school off. Right, but uh, <laughs> you weren't complaining. But, uh, I weren't. Compl- I wasn't complaining. Um, but you know, no complaints, no uh, no pushback, no not no anything. Right. Whereas uh, there's probably a reason why the school district doesn't 
call it Good Friday, right? Right, and and, and I think that's um, I, I I do think that's a, a a nod to the kind of religious diversity that we now have uh, in in our society. So I, I think that's a step in the right direction. And I, and I'm not at all calling for you know the abolition of, of winter break or or some of these holidays. I, I think uh, for me it's more about opening our eyes and and having better conversations uh, about what is happening. Why is it that we've organized our calendars this way? Well, it's because the United States in particular has has a has a history and that there's there's a religious uh, history there in terms of the of the majority culture and so just being able to talk about that and finding ways then to to include other people and other cultures uh, and that's one of the things that we want to equip teachers to do is to have these conversations with their students that there's this fear that we can never talk about religion in public right it's religion and politics are the things that you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table or or, or in the classroom right because it it evokes so many strong feelings um, but there's actually nothing wrong. There's nothing illegal about talking about religion uh, in in the classroom. Uh, it's simply a matter of having the tools to do it right. In fact, um, I just want to uh, bring up a quote here that um, in 1963, the Supreme Court, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court had a very famous ruling in which they banned organized school prayer uh, and and also Bible readings uh, in, the, in the public schools. But, um, but they didn't want to give the indication that you could just never talk about religion in schools. So actually, as part of the majority opinion in that Supreme Court case, Abington Township v. Shemp, uh, Justice Tom Clark said, it might well be said that one's education is not complete without a study of comparative religion or the history of religion and its relationship to the advancement of civilization. So, so actually, the Supreme Court, in the very decision that said, you shouldn't be praying in the classroom, you shouldn't be doing public Bible readings in the classroom like we did for most of this nation's history, and so they said, you should be talking about religion, you should be teaching students about religion, uh, you just can't be teaching them religion. Uh, you, you can't be teaching them to be good Christians. You can't be doing Bible readings, but they should be learning about comparative religion and learning about all these things. Mm. Lauren Kirby, uh, only taking off from that, with uh, Dr. Mason just said, um, that it, it seems like in my mind we've come a long way from that. We're, in that ruling, we should be talking about religion to teachers being nervous about even bringing it up in class. Yes, teachers are. Uh extremely nervous about this. And I think with good reason, we're living in a moment where public school teachers in particular are often the target for a number of sort of attacks in the so-called culture wars. Um, and that takes a toll on people. I mean, teachers are human beings that can be really painful and challenging um, and even destructive for teachers to be in the, in the, um, in the middle of that kind of thing. But for me, it's really about what kind of conversations do we want to have? Like, this is one of the guidelines I lay out when I work with teachers. Are you wanting to have a conversation that persuades students that a particular religious approach or idea is right or wrong? That's going to fall outside the bounds of uh, the Supreme Court's parameters that Patrick just described. But if you want to have a conversation about how do people, maybe us, maybe other people, maybe some people in this room, maybe not me, but other people, how do people experience the world and how does religion play into that? And if they hold a particular religious position that's different from mine, how is their experience of the world different from mine in that way um, or similar in the, as the case may be? So trying to think about it as really it's a constructive conversation to understand each other. It's not about proving or arguing that something is right or wrong. It's not about denigrating any religion or building any religion up. 
it's really just about how do we get people to see how other people live. And there's a huge benefit in that. But that is kind of scary sometimes. Um, I mean, when kids are when kids are learning things that are outside of their experience and their parents' experience, it can be really um, really challenging in uh, in some communities for some families. Um, so I think open lines of communication with both parents and students about this approach is really helpful. And I've seen that be successful in a number of school districts. But just letting everyone in on that, like this is the kind of conversation we're, we want to have. We're not here to say you're wrong, your parents are wrong, um, or you're right either way. Um, we're just here to understand each other better um, and to understand how our country has come to be this way, our world has come to be this way, because religion plays a huge role um, really in any, in any course subject in public schools. I want to get into uh, talking about you know, maybe some specifics. I'm quoting again from, um, this is, I think you've been, um, Lauren Kirby, uh, involved with this center, Religion and Public Life at Harvard Divinity School, right? Uh, they have some yes, some yes, great uh, definitions here, and um, I just want to read this and have you respond first, and then we'll get to Patrick Mason. Um, let's, let me uh, scroll to this here. Critical, they say, to this definition of religious literacy is the importance of understanding religions and religious influences in context as inextricably woven into all dimensions of human experience. This is what stood out to me. Such an understanding highlights the inadequacy of understanding religions through common means, such as learning about ritual practices or exploring what scriptures say about topics or questions. I guess you you know you you get into that, but but you need to go further. Is what I'm taking from this. I think that's fair. I think it's it's really a both and, and I think it's important to know the sacred texts, to know the narratives that come out of religious traditions, to know their histories, their ritual practices, what their architecture and art look like. Those are all really important things. But it's like if you're in a geology class and you go outside and you pick up a rock off the ground and you bring it into study, um, that's probably cool. It's really obvious. It's something you see every day. That's great. You'll understand something about it. But in my experience of geology class, the really interesting thing is when you go below the surface of the earth, you're digging down into the strata, into the layers of rock and sediments and tectonic plates moving around that have produced something interesting on the surface where we live. And that to me is that is that level, that sort of deeper level where we can think about religion in history and our politics and our social structures and norms, um, just in these, in these more abstract yet really critical uh, dimensions of our lives together. Patrick Mason, I want to get your uh, thought on that. You know, the surface, I guess, is necessary, but digging deeper. Yeah, well, um, so I'm teaching a a course on campus right now called Religion, Violence, and Peace. And so it is kind of a world religions approach, uh, but through the lens of of how do each of these traditions, how have they uh, uh, dealt with the questions, how have they grappled with issues of, of violence and peace? And uh, one of the things that I that I want the students to understand uh, here by the end of the semester is that within a single religious tradition. So sometimes we we say you know Christians believe X, right, or Hindus do Y. Um, well, the fact of the matter is that. Christians have always argued <laughs> about what they actually believe. And Hindus, there's a lot of different practices that, that, that we can call Hindu practices, and they argue about which are the best practices uh, to do. And so there's uh, no religion is monolithic. 
uh, no religion speaks with just one voice. And so when you only say, you know, say, pull out a, a passage of Scripture and say, oh, this is, this is what this religion believes, well, you might be leaving out another passage of Scripture that argues <laughs> with that one. So, so these religious traditions, the, the, the reason why they, they work so well, the reason why they've survived thousands of years, uh, you know, to, to, to millions, even billions of, of people, is precisely because they're so internally diverse. Uh, you, you can't just point at one thing and say, this is what all Jews do, or this is what all Buddhists do. That, that actually, um, you can start there, of course, because you have to start somewhere. Uh, but then to understand the way that, that it's, it's involved in culture. And uh, Buddhism looks different uh, in Japan than it does in Vietnam, uh, than it does in Sri Lanka, than it does in the United States. Uh, Christianity, I mean, I, I think people who come out of a Christian context can appreciate this, right? There's so many different varieties of Christianity. And are there, are there some things that unite them? Sure. Uh, but actually, the, the things they argue about uh, are in some ways uh, more significant in terms of really understanding what's going on on the ground. So, so it's both the, the kind of internal diversity, but also the way that it's situated in culture uh, that is really important to understand. Well, let's take I a break. Just, yes, go, go ahead. Yes. So? I would just add that it also that it changes over time. Yeah. Um, that it's not just static. The, the Christianity that folks practice today and all its variations is not the same Christianity of the 16th century or the 9th century. Um, so really adding in that dimension of time is critical, too, because religious practices do change. Traditions do change. Um, even scriptures through translation can change. So it's it's critical to be aware of all those dimensions. So it's not just monolithic, but static. It's monolithic and it's or it's uh, it's diverse and dynamic. Um, there's always something interesting and creative happening and changing within a religious tradition. Well, let's uh, take a break. We'll continue this uh, discussion. Uh, following a brief break, we're talking with Patrick Mason, who's Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University, and Lauren Kirby who is a visiting fellow at the Center for Culture, Society, and Religion at Princeton University. Um, and Patrick Mason is uh, directing this year's Benyon Teachers Workshop that will be happening in June. And Lauren Kirby will be giving the keynote address and giving a workshop as well uh, at that workshop for teachers, which will be happening in June. You can uh, visit the website. Uh, I, I just Googled Benyon Teachers Workshops, what I did. Um, we'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about religious literacy. It's among the topics that will be talked about in the 2022 Benyon Teachers Workshop presented by the USU Mountain West Center for Regional Studies. Uh, this year's workshop is titled Religion and American Democracy, Literacy, Liberty, and the Public Good. And we have with us director of that workshop, Patrick Mason, Leonard J. Arrington, Chair of Mormon History and Culture at USU, and Lauren Kirby, who will be presenting uh, at the workshop. Uh, she is a visiting fellow at the Center for Culture, Society, and Religion at Princeton uh, University. Um, so, Lauren Kirby, I want to start this segment uh, by talking a little bit about your, uh, your fascinating book. Um, this is an illustration of how the, for what, for, for some people, is invisible, how that, uh, you've made that visible, uh, interaction of uh, religion and politics, uh, saving history, how white evangelicals tour the nation's capital and redeem a Christian America is the title uh, of the book. And so I understand you, I don't know, do you take some of these tours? What do you, do you talk about this? 
Yeah, so I I did go on these tours. So the the purpose of the book was really to study white Christian nationalism and to try to understand how does this worldview come to make sense such that actions like, um, you know, after the fact, I guess, like January 6th, um, are righteous or they feel righteous to the people um, doing them. So I was looking at the stories that white evangelicals tell about the United States and about American history and to really, you know, go right to the source, I went on some Christian heritage tours of Washington, D.C. So, you know, D.C., there's buses all over the place. People are wandering around, taking pictures of all the monuments and memorials and listening to tour guides. Um, and that was true for these tours, but the tour guides were specifically, um, they were trained by Christian organizations to give a particular narrative of American history that the nation was founded by Christians and for Christians, that it was in a kind of covenant with God and um, maintaining a kind of Christian morality and discipline was essential to maintaining God's blessing on the nation. And um, I'm sure you've heard this story before, so you know the next part, which is we're in danger of losing it. It's sort of a, a Jeremiah, like the he- prophets of the Hebrew Bible saying, you know, but, but you need to repent, you need to get back on track. Um, or or things are going to get bad, bad things will happen. And they were telling that story all over Washington, D.C., and they were using the city itself as a kind of evidence for it. So, for instance, um, we, w- we went into the, the House of the Visitor Center uh, at Congress, and there's a replica of the House of Representatives chamber. And this is one of the places where the sort of legacy of Christian power in the U.S. is really visible. Because it says, in God we trust, right behind the speaker's rostrum. So when you're seeing the president give the State of the Union or any other major address, you always see that phrase. So we walk into this replica, and we, get, we, we see it. Everyone's very excited. This is, this is pretty cool. Um, but then they start telling a story about, you know, that almost wasn't there. Um, initially, in the, the um, visitor center design, that phrase, in God we trust, wasn't on the replica. And uh, Representative Randy Forbes of Virginia basically halted funding. He blocked funding um, until they restored it. And for the tourists I was with, this was this was sort of a parable for them. Um, they were seeing themselves. They were see- seeing themselves as sort of the people who would step in, who would restore Christian America, who would put back these symbols, put back um, praise to God in various uh, public places. And that was what they needed to do. So they were experiencing a kind of threat. Like they were putting themselves in this space where a public symbol of Christianity had been threatened. And then they were hearing about how to restore it um, through being politically active. So lots of places like that. They did this throughout the Capitol, at the Supreme Court, at the Washington Monument, at Arlington National Cemetery. You know, we went to all the, the usual sites. Um, but the stories were really distinctive. So that's what I try to capture in the book, because that way of thinking about the American past, I think is really critical to understanding uh, white Christian nationalism, which is a, a big thing in our politics right now. It's really worth understanding. Um, I'm just reading the sentence from the blurb for the book. Uh, this vision of American history is uh, white evangelicals' most powerful political resource. It allows them to shape shift between the roles of faithful patriots and persecuted outsiders. It does, um, or as I often say, but it gives them the best of both worlds. So you'll notice in that story, there's there's sort of two places for them. They're, they can be victims um, or sometimes exiles at various which 
uh, biblical narrative they're using, that they can they can be sort of the persecuted outsiders in American culture, and they can call up examples of people belittling Christianity or um, the the case we mentioned earlier, Abington versus Shunt, kicking God out of public schools as a is a common way that they would talk about this. Um, but they can also see themselves, and they can do that when it's politically expedient, because sometimes it's really expedient in American politics to be an outsider. Um, we have a long history of sort of moralizing um, outsiders, giving them the moral high ground. Uh, with the civil rights movement, uh, with LGBTQ rights more recently, um, with women's rights um, sort of valorizing the outsider, and the Christian right really picked up on that and has been using that as a tool. At the same time, they also have this claim to that legacy of Christian power. They can claim to be the heirs to the founders. They can claim to have all of the authority of tradition behind them when they want to impose something of their own. Um, and that's also powerful in the United States. We're a country that really loves tradition. We really revere tradition in many ways. So if you have white evangelicals advocating for a particular policy, say, um, well, let's go for it. Say, don't say gay. Um, they can sort of play either side of that. Um, they can play a role of, well, we shouldn't do this because our traditional values um, that are just American, not Christian, but American, preclude us um, saying gay or like opening up this, this can of worms uh, in the classroom. Um, but they can also play the victim and talk about how talking about uh, queer sexualities in a classroom is harmful to Christian students or can infringe on those students' beliefs or cause them to really question uh, their belonging and they really can position themselves as sort of um, the, the alienated minority in that context. And both of those are rhetorically powerful. Um, and I've seen both of those at play in these kinds of debates. So that's why I say it's their most powerful political resource, because there really aren't any other groups that can that can do that, that can play both the outsider and the insider. Um, it's a unique rhetorical tool that they developed over the last four years, and they use it really effectively. Patrick Mason, anything you wanted to say in, in follow-up there? And then I have a, a question specifically for you. Yeah, well, I, th I, I mm -hmm. think it is so relevant to understand um, the, the the current state of politics and, and society. Uh, and, and this is where uh, an understanding of, of, of both these contemporary issues, but also the, the, there is a deep history here. And uh, you know, I, I'm, an, I'm an American religious historian, and, and so uh, one of the reasons that I went into that is, uh, field is, is because I—to to try and understand the dynamics of how we got to where we are today uh, with, within uh, this country and, and the powerful ways that religion has shaped uh, our—not our, just the language that we use, but actually the, the very debates that we have, the, 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 the politics, the issues, the policies, uh, and, and the way that they play play out uh, in this country. So I, I think we we ignore the religious dimension, um, uh, w whether because we are religious and we want to sort of keep it invisible or or on the other side for for deeply secular people uh, who just don't want to talk about religion at all. Um, so so I, I think we we avoid the conversation about religion in the public sphere at our peril. Mm. I want to follow up. Um as I was thinking about insider-outsider, uh, I was thinking about Mormon history yeah. and culture. That's what you study, of course. So yeah. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 
the dominant religion in Utah, right, and yeah. in some parts of the West. On the other hand, uh, a whole history of being persecuted and a, a kind of an outsider mentality. Yeah, I, and, and this is why I think Utah is such an interesting place. Uh, because so so my my other colleagues in religious studies here at Utah State they uh, and most of us have taught somewhere else uh, they say you know when, when you teach in a lot of other places around this country uh, yet uh, when you're teaching a religious studies course you have to spend like the first month convincing students why the topic matters mm-hmm. <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, uh, in Utah you do not have to do that uh, we can walk into the classroom uh, knowing that the, that religion matters uh, to uh, to to the students whether or not they're religious. Whether or not they're affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, everybody in Utah knows that religion matters. Um, and, and, and then, so, so then you go fr- from there in terms of making sense of that. Um, and, and I think Mormonism is so fascinating. I mean, it, it is um, one of the quintessential outsider religions in the 19th century, that in the 1880s, you know, every State of the Union address by every president, both Republican and Democrat, identified Latter-day Saints as one of the chief threats to the Republic. Um, you know, the, the, the raft of, of anti-polygamy and anti-Mormon legislation, in addition to, to lots of violence. And then this unbelievable shift in the late 19th and early 20th century, where Latter-day Saints want to move towards the American mainstream and have been phenomenally successful uh, over the past century. And, and I think it plays out in such interesting ways here in Utah, where a minority becomes the majority. And, and so much of the discomfort and, and so much of some of the hard conversations that we have here in Utah uh, come from uh, the, the, the fact that you have this majority culture that still sometimes feels embattled. It's very much what Lauren was just talking about. Uh, so there's no doubt the Mormonism has been the dominant cultural force in, in Utah since, you know, white, whites uh, arrived here, since the Mormon pioneers came, but always with a victim mentality, always with that memory of being persecuted. Uh, and then that plays out really in really interesting ways for then people who are not Latter-day Saint who live here and, and find them, them themselves, uh, you know, you just you just look at the the Utah State Legislature, um, the demographics there. The actually the overrepresentation of Latter Day Saints in the Utah State Legislature. Uh, so I think Utah is just a fascinating place because of these these dynamics that, that are unlike anywhere else in the country. I want to follow up uh, with that, uh, Lauren Kirby. Do you, uh, when you talk to teachers, do you is that the first <laughs> thing you have to the hurdle to overcome? Is this matters? Do you ha- do you have to do you have to convince them? Um, not so much as teachers, but certainly with administrators, mm-hmm. you know, con- convincing any administrator that, yes, this is worth offering an elective course on, you know, give a whole semester, even a year or two of a religious studies course, um, or convincing a uh, curriculum uh, developer that, no, you should make space in this U.S. history course to talk about religion, you know, preferably a few times, not just once. Um, that's really challenging. You know, there's a real scarcity of time and resources in our in our schools. So you do have to convince someone that religion matters. Um, in my experience, students are pretty excited about it. Like, once you do convince them, like, yes, this matters, no, I'm not trying to convert you, um, they start to see that it's a way to reflect on their own lives, on the choices they've made, the values they hold, and where they've come from, um, to learn really interesting stories and ways of life from around the world. Um, and once you get them over that hump, that's pretty easy. But for me, it's always been the uh, the bureaucracy that you have to get through. Um, and I've gotten the chance to work with wonderful administrators who are really, uh, really accommodating, really excited and open to, to teaching religious studies and really taking it seriously in the classroom. 
Um, and when you get those people, it's, it's a piece of cake. Um, you can fit it in and you teach it right. Students will see that it matters to them and to, to everyone around them. Yeah, that's the thing is that I, I've had the same experience that the students just eat this stuff up. Um, not yeah. only the, the kind of multicultural, you know, what is a Jewish celebrate, you know, what part, part of it is age appropriate, right? I mean, you know, with with uh, real young kids just playing Hanukkah games is, is kind of fun mm-hmm. and just just exposing them to different cultures and different ideas. But as kids get older and, and, and then with with uh, my students in college to to you know they're asking existential questions at this stage in their life um and and so to open their eyes to to the diverse ways that the different religions have approached you know how to organize uh, society what is the nature of uh, what is life what is the nature of existence uh, how do you think about this how should what is what is the good life? Uh, what is w- worth uh, spending your time on? And to to take from the the wisdom of the world, not just from whatever slice of the world they, they come from and their own experience. Uh, I've found my students are just invigorated by this. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's you, really what got me into mm-hmm. studying religion was seeing those big questions. And it was, it was just this chance to think bigger than I ever had. So, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely that resonates. Uh, with myself and with my students. Uh, we'll we'll head toward a break here, and after the break, I want to talk about uh, religious liberty and some other things that'll be happening at the workshop. But uh, um, I want to um, just maybe briefly here. We we've referenced this, um, and of course, if you're a teacher, you know, register for the workshop. Please come. do. Um, but maybe uh, for teachers who maybe won't be able to come or. or Parents and a family, uh, give us some tips, Lauren Kirby. What are what are some things that you you know simple things that you teach? Uh, how to teach these things without, I guess, without getting into controversy with, <laughs> without having your worst fears yeah. come true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, realizing it's not risk free, right? There's never zero risk with this, um, but that's true with any subject. So for me, I like to pick things that are not what students expect. So they probably have assumptions about what they would learn in a religion class. Um, they'll come in expecting to learn the five pillars of Islam, um, you know, learn something about the Trinity, learn something about Buddhist practice, about Hindu gods. And I like to pick things that really surprise them. Um, so, for instance, I worked when I was at uh, Religion and Public Life at Harvard Divinity School in a previous role. Um, I worked with a collaborator on some case studies, and one of them uh, for Islam is about Muslims in space. And it's one of my favorite things that I've ever gotten to work on because it's it's really interesting. How do you pray if you're orbiting the Earth and Mecca is continually changing position? How do you when do you pray if the the um, sunlight is not really your your daylight um, in the same way that it is on Earth with a twenty four hour day? Um, so it's things like that, bringing in, you know, religion in an unexpected place, um, maybe literally outer space, but maybe just, you know, a place that's not a religious building or a religious practice, but some, somewhere outside of what they would ever expect to encounter, I find is, is really fun and makes them really think through the eyes of people who are part of that tradition um, and think about what it's like to live in their shoes. The other thing I really love to do is, Get out of the classroom. Um, go see some stuff. Uh, there is nothing like experience 
for students to really feel. It's sort of, it's, it's not just thinking. It's also about feeling. To really feel that religion matters, that they can see it, they can meet religious people, um, they can see it marked on the landscape. Um, so one good place to go is any kind of public memorial in the United States before about 1965 and sometimes after. Um, take your students and look at look for religious iconography, look for religious phrasing, look for biblical quotations. Um, it's really cool when students are like, oh, I get it. That's religion. I see it. It's out in public. Now I get what we're doing. Um, those are really powerful learning experiences for students. So I highly recommend anything of the sort. Patrick Mace, again, before we go to break, any tips that you, you have? Yeah, well, I, I think, it, uh, you know, I'd encourage people not to be afraid of, of the conversation, but the, to, to go in uh, to, to the conversation and the, and the learning, um, there have to be some guardrails, and it has to be that the, the primary purpose when you're learning and having these kinds of conversations, the primary purpose is neither to promote nor to denigrate a particular religion, not to convert or deconvert. Uh, it's, it's to learn. Um, you know, I can learn a lot about biology without becoming a biologist. Mm. You know, I, 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 I can learn um, uh, a lot about butterflies without becoming a butterfly. Mm. Uh, and, and so there's, there's uh, an aspect just of curiosity of, and, and of wanting to, to, to learn more about other people's lives and other cultures without being defensive or offensive, uh, of just wanting to learn. Uh, I, I think uh, there's some kind of deep human connection that can happen there. And, and we can make mistakes along the way. You know, maybe we'll, we'll say, say something or ask a question that is offensive. But if we ask it with a kind of spirit of generosity and openness and curiosity, then generally people will reflect that back and say, oh, OK, we don't talk about it that way. Uh, uh, and, and, and then we learn along the way. And it's OK to say, I'm sorry, I, I didn't know. Uh, but, but to go in with that kind of just innate curiosity uh, rather than trying to justify your own beliefs. Beliefs, uh, I, th- I think that's going to go a long ways. Well, let's take a break. We'll come back with our uh, last segment uh, on uh, this topic. We're talking about the 2022 Benyon Teachers Workshops coming up in June. Uh, we'll have the link to their website on our website with this program. Uh, the title of the workshop this year is Religion and American Democracy, Literacy, Liberty, and the Public Good. We're talking with the director of this year's workshop, uh, Leonard J. Arrington, Chair of Mormon History and Culture at USU, Patrick Mason. And Lauren Kirby, who's a visiting fellow at the Center for Culture, Society, and Religion at Princeton University. She'll be the keynoter and uh, give a workshop uh, at uh, that uh, the Benyon Teachers Workshop. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking uh, about previewing the 2022 Benyon Teachers Workshop. The title of this year's workshop is Religion and American Democracy, Literacy, Liberty, and the Public Good. We're talking with the director of the workshop, Patrick Mason, Leonard J. Arrington, Chair of Mormon History and Culture at USU, and Lauren Kirby, who will be giving a keynote and a workshop at uh, the workshop, a uh, scholar of American religion and politics, expert on the pedagogy of religious studies, and a visiting fellow at uh, Center for Culture, Society, and Religion at Princeton University. So I want to talk in about uh, about six minutes we have left in the program about religious liberty. This is being much talked about um, um, Patrick Mason, your brief definition. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, the definitions can can be part of the the contest. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, this is rooted in our Constitution and the First Amendment of the Constitution, which guarantees that the Congress will not prohibit the free exercise of religion, uh, nor will it establish 
any particular religion. And those few words, it's, it's, it's a very short uh, sort of clause within that First Amendment, but that's led to all kinds of debates. What does that mean? What does it mean to establish a religion? What does it mean to have free exercise of religion? Um, uh, Latter-day Saints were actually the first ones to test that in the, in the Supreme Court over the practice of polygamy, and they lost, uh, where, where the court said, you can believe whatever you want, you just can't do whatever you want uh, as part of religion. And, and we've been debating this ever since. And so this is actually one of the richest but also most contested parts of constitutional law. Um, but it plays out in public schools. It plays out in, in workplaces. It plays out in, in uh, universities, all kinds of places. What does it mean to have a, a religiously free society um, that doesn't privilege any particular form of religion. So we're going to talk about that. Well, actually, we're going to have two two guests during the workshop. Uh, Judge Thomas Griffith uh, recently retired from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, one of the second highest court in the land. Uh, he was a George W. Bush appointed uh, a judge, so uh, came from the conservative side. Uh, and then we're going to have Monica Miller, who's one of the senior legal counsels for the American Humanist Association. Uh, so, so uh, uh, you know, one of the things we want to do is, is to show teachers that there's a wide range of opinions on a lot of these things, and these are actively contested in the courts. But we want to draw out some of the some of the contours of, of the debate uh, and where things are at right now. That that should be fascinating. Should yeah, be fascinating. One of the other uh, questions to be treated at the workshop. I want to uh, address this to uh, Lauren Kirby. Was America founded as a Christian nation? That's a much debated uh, topic. And of course, the the folks that you studied uh, for your book, right, white evangelicals, they they come down on a very definite side. I, I would imagine. They do, but the thing is, there's not two sides to that question. It's not a yes or no question. Unfortunately, for those of us who'd like a resolution. Um, what do we mean by Christian nation? Do we mean a nation in which the majority of the population is Christian? Um, do we mean a nation in which Christian values inform uh, the laws and social structures of of the the country? Um, which Christianity do we mean? Do we mean uh, a Baptist form? Do we mean a Episcopalian form? Do we mean Greek Orthodox forms or Catholic forms? Um, there's there's a lot of different ways to imagine the relationship between Christianity and the nation. So answering that question really depends on what your perspective is on what makes a nation religious or not. I think the United States was founded by people who had varying degrees of relationship to Christianity, um, from deists to devout Protestants and Catholics, um, and they were doing the best they could. Right? They, were, they were making up uh, a democracy as they went along. So their values necessarily went into what we were doing. But we're not a static country. Just like religion, a country is changing and evolving over time. So lots of different people have come in and um, contributed to this country, both um, individually and materially, and also in just the ways we think about our lives together. So this has always been in flux. So I don't I wouldn't say the United States was founded as a Christian nation. I think there were Christians at the American founding, and I think white Christians especially have had a lot of power um, throughout United States history, and they've had an un, uh, sort of a disproportionate influence on our culture. I don't think that makes for a Christian nation. Just to have uh, maybe a couple minutes left, uh, Patrick Mason, I want to talk about uh, uh, on the Wednesday of this yeah. week, you're doing a field trip, I guess, to uh, to demonstrate religious diversity 
Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that. And like Lauren said, you have to get out of the classroom sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so we're actually going to hop on a bus and we're going to drive down to Salt Lake. There's actually religious diversity all over the state. It's just easiest to go to Salt Lake because it's uh, with the concentration of population and and different places there. So we're going to go to a Jewish synagogue. Uh, We're going to go to uh, an an Islamic center, a mosque. Uh, We're going to go to a Hindu temple and hopefully one other site. I'm I'm still arranging that. So I want to get the workshop participants uh, out of the classroom and into some of these other places to hear from, you know, a rabbi and and an imam uh, and and, and uh, you know uh, leaders at, at, at the Hindu temple to to, to tell us uh, and, and for us and, and actually at, at the Islamic Center they're going to feed us lunch and <laughs> uh, and and so I, uh, Tuesday night we're going to have World Religions Feast you know kind of sample from from some of the foods that you might get from some of these cultures and religions from around the world and so we want it to be experiential because religion is not just ideas. Uh, uh, it's the way you live your life, and, it, and it's being in these spaces and feeling and seeing and smelling uh, what, what different religions are like. Well, very good. We're uh, just about out of time. Um, Lauren Kirby, what would you, if a person, maybe a teacher, wants to contact you separately, what's the, the best way to do that? Yeah, I guess you'd maybe engage with a with a teacher on this topic? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm on Twitter, at Lauren Arthur, at Lauren R. Kirby. Um, they can also email me. My email is available on the Princeton website. Um, I love working with teachers. That is my favorite part of my job. You know, I love I love the research and the books and the writing and all of that. But working with teachers who are making such an enormous difference in the world is really just a joy for me. So please do reach out. All right. Well, the 2022 Bunyan Teachers Workshop at Utah State University, presented by USU Mountain West Center for Regional Studies, is titled Religion and American Democracy, Literacy, Liberty, and the Public Good. We'll have the link to the workshop, uh, so you can sign up there on our website, upr.org. And we have had today uh, with us uh, Patrick Mason, who's directing this year's workshop, uh, Leonard J. Arrington, Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University. Thanks so much for coming in. It's thrilled to be here. Thanks, Tom. And Lauren Kirby, who's a visiting fellow at the Center for Culture, Society, and Religion at Princeton University. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. It was a great conversation. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today.